You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Quick correction. I want to correct Pastor Steve on something. There aren't 52 questions in the Heidelberg Catechism. There's 129. (laughs) It's divided up into 52 weeks so that if a church uses all the questions grouped for each Lord's Day, you'll make it through the whole catechism in one year. He was kind of right, but he was mainly wrong, brothers and sisters. But we love him. We love him. But any, anyhow, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 43, and we really do love Steve. I'm just busting your chops, man. Um, and tonight, we're going to be taking a look at the account of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Uh, now, normally when I preach... I I try to look at the text and then see what the main theme, what the biggest theme or lowest hanging fruit, you could say, what the main theme of the text is, and then preach that. And that's super valid, right? Obviously, we read the text and we preach what the text says. Uh, But that's not what I'm going to do this evening. I'm still going to preach the text, but I'm not going to preach the main theme of the text. Uh, Instead, I'm going to be preaching on a smaller but very powerful and timely sub-point to this text. Um, Tonight, I want to highlight this secondary point that I will prove from this passage. Uh, But here's what this, here's where I'm driving at this evening, right? So cat's out of the bag. Here's where we're going. Jesus is able and faithful to do everything that he says. You're going to see that in this passage. Again, it's not the main point of this text, but it is a valid sub point that I want to draw out for you. His word is true. Whatever he says about us is true. Whatever he says he has done is true. Whatever he says he will do, whatever he promises us is true. He will be faithful. Therefore, we can and must trust him. We are to believe everything that he says. We are to trust in the promises he's made to us. So again, Jesus is able, as almighty God, to keep all of his promises. And he is faithful to keep all of his promises. But there's a question, really, that I want us to answer, and it's this, right? What are we to do when things go badly for us, right? In our text, we're about to read, Jairus' daughter dies in this passage. So what are we to do when we suffer? What are we to believe when we're enduring trials? I I believe that the answer is found in what Jesus says, that the disciple, in verse 36, you read that the disciple is to not be afraid, but to keep on believing. Right? We're to trust him, to trust his word, to not be afraid, but keep on trusting him. So my prayer this evening is that God would use this sermon to encourage those of us who are suffering, and the number for a church of 40 members is great. That so many of you are going through so much, and even some of our visitors, as I look out, I know the suffering that you're currently enduring. My prayer is that God would direct your attention to his word and his promises. And that he would grant you deeper faith to believe his promises and rest in them and push into them as you continue to follow him faithfully through the pain. And for the rest of us who are not going through any suffering right now, because life is good for a lot of us as well, my prayer is that God would use this sermon in your life to provide you with a firm foundation to build your house upon so that when the trials of life 
come upon you like a flood, and they will, that you will not fall. All right, so may God make much of himself this evening as we consider what he has said to us in his word. Now, if you please, what is a sign of respect to God? If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, and then skipping down to verses 35 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Verse 35. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking around, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our mighty and faithful God, we come before you this evening and ask that you would bless us through the preaching of your word. Please speak to us by your Holy Spirit through the scriptures. Speak to us words of peace and comfort and encourage our hearts. Lord, you know that many of us are weary and we ask that you would please refresh us according to your word. We ask that you would remove our unbelief and grant us repentance for not trusting you and remind us, Lord, of what you say. For what you say in your word is of greater value than anything we perceive in the trials that we face. Glorify yourself this evening, sovereign God. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You guys can be seated. So, this is a long sermon, right? You'll be all right. So let's just go ahead and, and dive into walking through this text. All right, our text begins in verse 21. Uh, with Jesus getting out of a boat at Capernaum. And, and as Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat, a large crowd forms and gathers around Jesus. And of all the people who came to Jesus that day, one man would have been like, just definitely distinguishable above the rest of the crowd. He was a man named Jairus that we read about. He was a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. And what that means is that he was in charge of finding rabbis to teach and he would also be in charge of organizing the synagogue worship each Sabbath day and also maintenance of the building. Um, now, synagogue rulers were very highly respected in their towns. Uh, they were almost always theologically Pharisees, uh, but they were lay people, right? They were lay people. Um, there are actually even some ancient documents you can find where uh, sometimes women would even be synagogue rulers if there were no men. And... Um, 
even, even a child or two occasionally. Strange. So these are lay people, but again, highly respected in their towns. They were, uh, again, almost always theologically Pharisees, but they weren't priests or religious leaders in any proper sense. But again, highly respectable people, men of great renown and dignity. At that time in their culture, a synagogue ruler like Jairus would have been considered more important and of higher status than Jesus. But here comes Jairus this day, and he falls down at the feet of Jesus, goes face down in the ground, and begins to beg Jesus for help. Verse 22 says that Jairus implored Jesus earnestly. He was sincere when he came to Jesus. He knows that he needs Jesus to help him and that no one else can help him. Jairus is desperate. And he's desperate because verse 23 tells us his daughter is dying. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. And here that doesn't mean that she's just very sick, right? That, that, that's not it. This phrase means that she's circling the drain as it were. Right? For us in our modern day, she is in hospice care, and the family has been called in, and they've been told today is the day. Jairus knows that his daughter is not long for this world. You can imagine his desperation. But he begs Jesus. He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And it's in this pleading from Jairus that we see his faith. He believes that if Jesus will come to his house and just touch his daughter, she will be healed and she will live. His faith is great, much like the woman with the issue of blood that we learned about last week. She says, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made clean. He says, if Jesus just touches my daughter, she'll be made well and live. He believes in Jesus. He believes that Christ is his superior. He falls down at Jesus' feet, doesn't he? He believes that Jesus is able to do it, and that's why he's come. I personally, when I read this, I don't see any doubt in Jairus' pleading with the Lord Jesus. He is fully convinced that, he, that Christ is able to make his daughter well. Again, that's why he came. That's why he's willing to debase himself in front of this large crowd who knows him as a ruler of the synagogue. He believes. He's desperate, but he believes. And why does he believe, though? Well, he's probably heard Jesus preach, right? Jesus preached in the synagogue at Capernaum, I believe in Mark chapter 1 it was. Jairus was a ruler of that synagogue. He's heard him teach. He's no doubt at least heard about what Jesus can do, but he's most likely seen Jesus perform at least one miracle. You remember in Mark 3, Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue at Capernaum. Jairus would have been there. He knows of Jesus' power. He's heard his teaching. I can't comment on the state of this man's soul at this point, but I think that it's clear that he truly believed that Jesus could help him. So he comes. And in keeping with Jesus' compassionate character, he agrees to go with Jairus. Verse 24 simply says, and he, Jesus, went with him. And I want to stop there for a second. There's something important here uh, that, that honestly my, my sermon turns on here. This is a hinge of a very important piece. There's something I want us to see here, and it's really simple. I believe that when Jesus went with Jairus, he was essentially and effectively giving Jairus his word that he would help him. Whenever he went with them, he was effectively promising Jairus, I will help you with your daughter. I know that the text doesn't say it explicitly, but I think it's, again, at least implied here. An example, if you came to me and said, David, I need your help. I need you to come to my house and talk to my kid. I don't know what to do. And then I said nothing and then got in your car and went with you to your house. What would you assume? I'm going to help you. 
I'm giving you my word. In fact, it would be evil and dishonest of me to then get out of your house, get out of the car at your house and say, oh, I didn't promise I would help you. I just wanted to come, right? That would be evil, right? So again, I believe that Jesus is giving him his word. So that little phrase, and he went with him. I think we see Jesus giving an implicit promise to help Jairus with his great need and that Jairus needed only to believe in him. And then, as you know from last week, as they were on their way to Jairus' house, there was an interruption. Right? The woman with the flow of blood, by faith, reached out and touched Jesus in the crowd and was immediately healed. And Jesus stopped, didn't he? He stopped. Uh, he stopped going to Jairus' house because he wanted to have a face-to-face -face encounter with this woman. Now, we don't know how long that this interruption lasted, but I'm sure that Jairus did not appreciate this interruption. I don't think you would have either. His daughter is dying back at his house, and Jesus just put a halt to their journey back to Jairus' house. I'm, I'm sure that Jairus is checking his watch, as it were, and getting frustrated, right? That he's at least thinking if he's not saying, come on, Jesus, we don't have time for this. That woman's fine. She's not that important. Let's go. My daughter could die before we get there. You need to hurry up. He wants Jesus to come immediately, but Jesus does things on his own time, does he not? And then the worst happens. During this pause, during this break, Jairus' situation goes from bad to unimaginably awful. His daughter dies. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking to that woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why trouble him any further? She's dead. All hope seems to be lost. Even though Jairus came to Jesus and had faith that Jesus could help him, his daughter died anyway. You know, sometimes, just a quick aside here, because we know the end of biblical accounts, we forget that these are real people enduring real pain, and they did not know what the outcome would be. This man is in anguish. This is every parent's worst nightmare, is it not? That you would receive news that one of your children is dead. His little girl, his 12-year-old girl, we find out, is gone. While he was on the way to the house with Jesus, she breathed her last. The surge of dread that hit Jairus would have been more intense than anything he's experienced this far, to his, thus far in his life. The Gospel of Luke has a parallel account that says she was his only daughter. How horrible. Imagine his pain, right? What is he to do now? Let this be a reminder to us before we go any further. Let this be a reminder to us that just because we believe, just because we are Christians, does not mean that we will not suffer. Jairus believed. He came to Jesus, and his daughter died anyway. Now, some of you know this too well by now. Right, that God has not promised us a life of health and wealth and ease. He has not promised us that we will not suffer. That Jairus' daughter dies, even though he believes in Jesus, reminds us that we all have to suffer. And that being a believer that does not mean that situations can't be bad. And it doesn't mean that they can't get worse. Hear me clearly, it is a fool who believes a false prosperity gospel. There will be many trials and tribulations in this life, even for God's people. 
we can expect them. We will hurt in this world. And so we must be prepared and armed with the word of God so that we can persevere through them by the grace of God. Jairus believed and his daughter died anyway. That's how it goes sometimes, isn't it? Even often, I would say. Pain is inevitable. We need to accept that. It's actually a very Western idea that we should try to avoid pain rather than just embracing the fact that we're going to suffer. Pain is inevitable. But we need to ask, how can I honor God through the suffering? Suffering's going to come. How might I honor him? Back to our text. I'm, I'm sure in that moment, Jairus thinks that there is nothing left for Jesus to do. It's too late. It's too bad. There's no hope. The worst has happened. So why trouble Jesus any further? Why trouble the teacher anymore? That's what his friends tell him. Nobody believes that Jesus can help anymore. And if we're honest, sometimes we believe that too in the darkest nights that we have. But I'm convinced they only think this way because they don't really yet know who Jesus is. But then Jesus looks at Jairus in verse 36 and consoles him and commands him. He turns to him and says, do not fear, only believe. This is a very important verse in this narrative. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus says, don't be afraid. But I was thinking, what would Jairus be afraid of? I, I think that like any of us would have, Jairus was fearing that there was no hope or help to be found, not even in Jesus. I think he was afraid, or he would have been afraid, that this is the end of the line, that this is it. He had asked Jesus to heal his daughter, and now she's dead anyway. What else is there to do? Nothing, there's nothing left to do but the crying, right? Jesus says, don't believe that. Don't believe that there is nothing left to do because I'm here. Don't be afraid. Don't believe that I can't do something. So Jesus tells him, instead, only believe, or more literally, the Greek there is, keep on believing. But what is Jairus to believe? That was a question that I, I asked when I was studying this. What is Jairus to believe? I think he's to believe what Jesus initially promised him whenever he went with him in verse 24. Again, Jesus had essentially told him, I will heal your daughter. I'll take care of it. Trust me, she will live. She will be made well and live. So even though she had died, Jesus calls Jairus to continue to believe his promise that he would help the girl. So now Jairus, instead of believing for healing, is to instead believe that Jesus can raise her from the dead. He is to believe that Jesus will still be faithful to do what he had initially promised to do. Namely, help his daughter and make her well. And I think that we see in the text that Jairus did indeed continue to believe. What an example for us. You say, well, where does it say he continued to believe? He kept taking Jesus to his house. He didn't send Jesus away and say, I don't need you anymore. It's too late. He continues to take Jesus to his house. So against all evidence to the contrary, Jairus takes him to his house anyway. He continued to believe that Jesus could help, that Jesus could do the impossible, that Jesus could raise his daughter from the dead. And though there is much for us to see in verses 37 through 43, I just want to summarize the rest of it all by briefly saying that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He did exactly what he said he would do. He went to Jairus' house, and though mocked by the unbelieving mourners there, which is a sermon in and of itself, he healed the little girl. He raised her from the dead, and he did so by a word. He said to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
And immediately the girl got up and began walking. By the word of his power, the Lord Jesus raised the girl from the dead. He was able to do the impossible. He was able to do the unimaginable. He was able to keep his word to Jairus. He was faithful. He was able to do it, and he was faithful. When all hope seemed lost, Jesus did what only God can do. Let this passage stand as a testimony to us of a couple of things. First, there is nothing that Jesus cannot do. He can do anything. Simple, I know. He's Almighty God. He has all power. He can do whatsoever he wills to do. We, we saw this at the end of chapter 4 with Jesus calming a raging sea with a word of command. He's sovereign over the natural world. We saw him at the beginning of chapter 5. Heal a man possessed with thousands of demons with a word. He's sovereign over the spiritual world. We've seen him heal multiple people in this passage, or uh, in this book so far, of incurable diseases. He is sovereign over disease and the body. And now we've seen him, by a word, raise someone from the dead. He is sovereign over life and death. All that is to say, there is nothing that he cannot do. He can do whatever he pleases to do. He's sovereign over every sphere of, of authority that exists. He is the Lord God omnipotent. He's God. I, I beg you to get that into your heart as much as you can. He is omnipotent, and he can do anything. He spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1. Nothing was made except that which he made. He was the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. He's the one who, as Paul says in Colossians, holds the universe together by, the, by his will. The God we serve is able to do anything. Nothing is impossible for him, and that is the God Christian that you and I belong to. Again, it's a simple truth, but I want you to see that Mark has been screaming this to us for over a chapter now. Jesus Christ is the almighty son of God who controls everything. He is limitless in his abilities. And related to his ability to do anything, we see in this text that Jesus will do whatever he has promised. That he is able, and he is able to do whatever he promises because he is God. And there's nothing he cannot do. If he says it, he will do it. We see in this passage the faithfulness of Jesus to keep his word. He did exactly for Jairus what he promised he would do in the beginning. Even when things got worse, Jesus still kept his word. He promises, then he fulfills. This is the holy pattern of God throughout the whole scriptures. Right? He's never let anyone down. He says it, and then he does it. Even when it seems hopeless, even when it seems as if there's no way, the Lord Jesus makes a way. He is faithful, and he is good to his people. He never lets them down. He never disappoints those who place their faith in him. He is the faithful God. But notice in this passage that he keeps his promise in his time and not ours. I know that that's a cliche, but that really struck me this week. He keeps his promises in his time, not ours. I am positive with every fiber in my being that Jairus did not want his daughter to die. He wanted Jesus to go straight to his house with no delay. But Jesus took his time to get there. He did. He took his time. Jesus does as he pleases. He cannot rush the Almighty Son of God. He can't. 
He does as he sees fit, when he sees fit. He desired to heal and meet the woman with the issue of blood. He did not do things as Jairus had planned. He did not do exactly what Jairus wanted him to do. He did his will, and yet his will was good. But briefly, does that then mean that Jesus didn't care about Jairus? Well, certainly not. Jesus, did he forget about Jairus? No. Even though things got worse for Jairus, Jesus remembered him. He remembered his promise because he's faithful. Now, those two simple points are some things that we learn here about Jesus and his character from this text. There are more. Again, this is a sub-point to this passage. But those are the things that I want you to see this evening. He's able and he is faithful. But what about us, right? What, what is there in this text to teach us about what it means to follow Jesus? Remember Mark's twin themes. I've said it a million times. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to be his disciple? That's Mark's two big themes of this whole book. And I think that this passage teaches us, among other things, that disciples can and ought to trust in Jesus, that we are to trust him to keep his word. You could put it this way. Being a disciple means to not fear but keep on believing. Verse 36. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Even when it seems all hope is gone. You see, disciples believe in Jesus in spite of their circumstances. If he has said it, we trust him. No matter what the situation looks like or even if it gets worse. Faith has no limits when it is grounded in the one who can do all things. So it's not a blind faith, as we are so often accused of. It's not a groundless or foolish faith. It's faith based in and on the character and deeds of Christ. Again, we trust in the one who can do anything, so our faith knows no limits. Again, we can trust the almighty Son of God to keep his promises just like Jairus did that day. Now here's the turnaround for us. What has he promised us? What has Jesus promised us? I can tell you right now, without a doubt, he has not promised you that you will receive your dead back in this life. He has not. That promise was specifically for Jairus that day. Let's keep biblical context in mind. He did not promise you that you will receive your dead back. Likewise, he has not promised you that you will have physical health or wealth or an easy life. You will not find that in the scriptures. He has not promised you that. Furthermore, if it's not found in his word, he's not promising anyone anything. Revelation has ceased. Now, I believe that thinking through what Jesus has promised us is very timely for this congregation. I know that many of you are suffering right now, like Jairus was. And you're suffering even though you believe. You're faithfully following Christ, and you suffer anyway. I know that we have people facing unemployment, and you don't know where you're going to get another job. You don't know how you're going to provide for your family. I know some in our congregation are married to an ungodly and cruel spouse. I know some have sick children. I'm thinking of the Beals with Josie. You maybe are sick. There are financial burdens that you don't know how you're going to face. There are addicts in your family. I know that some of you cannot, at least at this point in time, conceive children. I know that some of you have lost children. 
there is much suffering. So what hope do you have? What hope do you have? What are you to trust Jesus to do? You know, I was talking to Pastor Gary Chaffins uh, this week, and, and, and we were talking about this, that so often people despair or feel let down by God when they're suffering or when they endure a trial. And they feel that way, I think, most of the time, because they are believing that God will be faithful to do things that he never promised them that he would do. That's a huge problem. They believe that he can do anything, and that's great, and that's biblical, but then they believe that he will do something that they have no grounds to believe that he will do because it's not found in the Bible. I know of a woman who believed beyond hope that God was going to heal her of cancer when she had no such promise in the word of God and she died of cancer. Having, and I'm not mocking her, she was a believer. Had no business to believe that. Had no business to claim that as a promise from God because he had not promised it. But then so often, when, when God does not do what such people were believing that he would do, they despair, and they lose hope, and they're crushed, and they become bitter, and they sin against God, and some even abandon the faith altogether. Please hear me. I love you enough to say this. I know this sounds harsh, but it is a dangerous and foolish thing to believe that God will do something that he has not revealed in his word that he would do. It is dangerous and foolish and will the vast majority of time lead to more sorrow because you will feel as if God has abandoned you whenever you had no right to believe that he would do what you were hoping he would do. Or rather, no right to claim it as a promise. So in light of the present suffering going on for many of us in this church, I want us to consider this question. What has God promised us? In his word, what has God promised us? What can we expect him to do in and through our situations? And that brings us now to the promises of God for us. This is where we're going to camp out for the rest of the sermon. I'm not going to go into deep detail about any of these things that I'm getting ready to go through. Many of you already know the things that I'm about to say. But I want to, to put these before you by way of reminder so that you'll trust Christ for the right things in your suffering that you'll trust him to be faithful to his word like Jairus was. And I have here seven promises or seven words from God for us. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. But these are seven things that God has said we are to believe as we go through this life. Some of them are going to be about his disposition towards you. I'm speaking to Christians. If you're not a a Christian here with us this evening, my prayer is that you would repent and believe upon Christ and be saved and then know that these promises are for you. But some of them are about God's disposition towards us. Some are about what lies ahead for us. Some are about what God promises to do for us now. But all of these need to be held together. And God will encourage us and protect us and keep us as we, by his grace, push into his promises. So here they are, seven promises from God that you are to believe, especially in the midst of your suffering. The first is this, you have not been destined for wrath. 
you have not been destined for wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9-10. through 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Christian, this promise stands so tall for us in our trials. You have not been destined for the wrath of God. No, you have been predestined for eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And your predestination to eternal life is evidenced in that you have fled to Christ for salvation and forgiveness. You've come to Jesus in faith and repentance. If you've come to Christ in faith, you need to know with full assurance that God's wrath has been taken from you and that eternal life is yours. Christ has taken the wrath of God in your place on the cross so that you could be forgiven. He paid the debt that you owed to God for your sin. That then means that there is no longer any wrath for you. Instead, there is only salvation for you. Christ died to save you so that you might live with him. So know this then for a certainty. Even as you suffer, know this. God is not punishing you. He's not punishing you. He may discipline his people, but discipline is corrective. Punishment is for wrath. And you have not been destined for wrath. You've been saved from it. God is not punishing you with your current trial and pain. He punished Jesus in your place for your sins. He is not punishing you. That would be unjust of him to punish Christ in your place and then punish you for your sins by giving you trials in life. He would not be unjust. He is most righteous and most holy and most just in all that he does. Your sins have been forgiven through the person and work of Jesus Christ and there is no longer any wrath for you to bear. So though you're suffering, even the worst situations you're suffering, know that it is not God's anger towards you that has brought this trial upon you. You have been saved from the wrath and anger and hatred of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have not been destined for wrath. A second promise you need to hold on to is that God loves you. God actually loves you and he refuses to allow you to be separated from him. Romans 8, 38 and 39, you guys know this. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here the Apostle Paul says that nothing can keep you from God's love found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, that means that God actually loves you. God actually loves you. Those who have hidden themselves in Christ are loved by the Father. And he will not permit any trial. Paul says nothing in all creation. He will not permit any trial to separate you from his love. He promises this to you. He chose you before you were born to be the object of his love. He sent his son to die for your sins because of his love for you. He called you out of darkness and to himself by his Holy Spirit because he loves you. He will not stop loving you now that you belong to him. He is the God who does not change. Hear it again. He does not change. He is immutable and he is beautiful for it. He does not change in his disposition towards you. He does not change in his love for you. 
First off, because he's immutable. Second off, because you are in Christ, says Paul. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've been united to the Lord Jesus by faith, and he loves his son dearly, and he loves his son always. Guess what that means? He loves you dearly, and he loves you always. He'll never stop that. No matter what he allows you to go through, know that he loves you. He promises here that you will not be separated from his love. No trial can do that. No pain can do that. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You belong to him now, and you always will. You always will. Nothing can change that. He will always love you, regardless of what you endure. A third promise. All things must work together for your good. You guys know this one, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is one of the most famous promises from God, and that for good reason. Here is God's promise to you, Christian, that nothing can befall you except that which is ultimately, in the final analysis, for your good. Therefore, everything that happens to you, as we confessed earlier, is subservient to your salvation. What? I'm not saying that the How to Word Catechism is scripture, but you need to hold that phrase. It's subservient to your salvation, whatever befalls you. Not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your heavenly Father. And all things are subservient to your salvation. If he allows the trials and pain to come, then it is for your good. So imagine this promise. Every ounce of sorrow, every, every tear, every heartbreak, every everything that you endure has been ordained by God and is subservient to your good according to his purposes. To quote John Piper, everything we suffer from criticism to cancer is serving our good in accordance with his will. This is a great promise to us that God is sovereign even over our suffering. That he's working out his divine decree in space and in time and that all things are working together for our good somehow. Somehow. Now I don't presume to know how all of your suffering or mine is for our good. God has not revealed that to us. Right? Deuteronomy, let the secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord. He's not revealed in his word how all of your suffering is ultimately for your good. And, and I, I personally think that most of the good that comes from our trials and pain will not be revealed to us this side of glory. But faith believes the promise. Romans 4, right? Abraham believed against all hope that God would be able to fulfill his promise to give him a son. He did not see how that would be possible seeing that his body was near death and his wife, likewise, was very old. But he believed God's promise. Faith believes the promise, even when the eyes or the mind cannot see it or understand it. In this verse, God comes to us and says, Trust me, nothing has come upon you that is meant to destroy you. I'm doing my good and perfect will, and I'm doing it because I love you. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. A fourth promise. God will give you what you need. Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, 
And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Here we have God's promise to take care of our material needs. And I know this hits home for some of you, especially those of you who have lost your jobs recently. In our times of desperation, when we don't know what we're going to do financially, when we're not sure how we're going to make ends meet, when we're worried that we're going to be thrown to the wolves, Jesus speaks peace to us here and says, Your heavenly Father knows what you need. So don't be anxious. Don't worry yourself to death over it. Rather, keep following me. Seek first the kingdom of God. Keep following me, and you will be taken care of. Now, I want to be clear, this is not a promise from God that we will not endure poverty. When Jesus said this, he himself was poor. And if anyone sought the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, it was Jesus. And he was poor. This is not saying that your past foolish financial behavior will not come home to roost. Because it will. But it is saying that God will provide for our basic needs. Not what we think we need, but our actual needs. Jesus tells us here that we are to busy ourselves with living righteously, that is, according to the word of God, and that God will see to it that our needs are met. So in our times of financial desperation, we can go to God and lay our needs before him and then continue to live our lives according to biblical principles and trust him to do what is best for us. He promises that he will take care of you. You will not get all that you want, you may still lose much, but he will make sure that you have what you need. What a blessing to know that God cares about us enough to promise to take care of our bodily needs because he sympathizes with us in our infirmities. So we need not to fear and worry about such things. We can live in freedom knowing the promise of God that he says he will see to it to provide for us. A fifth promise of God. God is growing you through your suffering. You guys know this one too. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here we have God's promise that our suffering is not for nothing. Again, similar to Romans 8.28, your suffering is not for no purpose. I know that that's not good grammar good grammar you'll be all right God's promise is that our suffering is not pointless we have God's word here that he is working in us to produce something through our pain and trials he is testing our faith says James literally that means he is refining it just like you refine gold by fire in order to burn out the impurities so that you have pure gold. That's the testing James is talking about. Sometimes our suffering is meant to teach us. It's meant to correct us, right? It's discipline. Other times, it's meant to give us perspective about what actually matters, to remind us that it is eternal things, the things of God that matter the most. But then I'll keep it real with you. Other times, there's no lesson to be learned. There's no lesson to be learned. There is no big aha moment in, the, in your trial. That doesn't always happen. Instead, God is using our trials to force us to trust him more and grow us. There's not necessarily, necessarily a lesson for you to learn. But God is growing you. 
God knows that faith is not really faith until it has been tested. Right? We don't often truly trust God until we're forced to trust him. And that's what God is most often doing through us, for, through our pain. He's saying, trust me. And then he's putting us in a position where we have to trust him so that we might grow. To, to know that God promises that he is at work in our pain, to do good for us and grow us, helps us to endure faithfully. Because we know our trials are not pointless, nor are they arbitrary. Rather, God is growing us to be more like his son. And that, brothers and sisters, is our greatest desire to be conformed to the image of his son. So then we can and ought to rejoice even in our trials. Not that our pain is enjoyable, but because we know God is making us more like his son. A sixth promise we have is that God will give you peace as you come to him in prayer. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise of peace. This is something that we need in the dark night of the soul. We have God's word here that he will give us peace beyond what we could imagine. Beyond what we thought possible given our circumstances. He will help us to have peace in our hearts even when there's nothing but chaos around us. He promises to give us relief in our spirit as we pour ourselves out before him in prayer. As we continually let our requests be made known to God, or rather, as we make our requests be made known to God, as we continually give him thanks. Thanks for what? For his past mercies toward us. Knowing that he's been faithful in the past and expressing that to him gives us peace to know he will be faithful in the future. There's much peace to be had in this promise. There's peace to be gained when we turn everything over to the Lord in prayer, believing that he will do good for us because he has done good for us before. Now, this is not saying let go and let God. I think that's foolish. Rather, it's a promise that God will help relieve us of our anxieties when we come to him in simple faith and praise and make known our needs. He promises peace if we will acknowledge and trust that he will take care of us. And that faith is expressed in genuine and sincere prayer. So take advantage of this promise and pour your heart out to the God who hears and the God who cares. And our last promise that I have for you this evening is that you will not be lost. In your trials, you will not be lost. John six thirty nine. the Lord Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This final promise was balm to my soul this week. It's a beautiful thing, and, and it was actually my sister that pointed it out to me. Here the Lord Jesus says that all who come to him in faith will have eternal life. It's simple, but it's a promise for us that becomes sweeter as life gets harder, doesn't it? Talk to an old saint who's sick. What do they think of? Oh, I'm going to heaven. I'm going home. Why? Because this promise gets sweeter as life gets harder. It's a promise that there is a life to come. And that those who come to Christ in faith will not be lost, but will inherit that eternal life to come. This is a certainty. We will be raised from the dead. 
whatever happens in this life, there is much gain to be had in the next one. And our inheritance of it is written in stone because our Savior has declared it out of His holy mouth. My sister put it to me this way, and this is beautiful and simple. She looked at me and said, Jesus is saying here that no matter what happens to me, I get to be with Him. No matter what happens to me, I get to be with Him. What a help to us as we suffer. What a promise for us to lay hold of by faith that we indeed will be with Him, that He will not lose us, that we will not be separated from Him, that even if our trials and our sorrows end in death, even if the worst happens, come whatever may, we will live forever in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We get Him. He will raise us from the dead. We will live forever with Him. So at the end of, the, uh, it all, at the end of it all, whatever we suffer now, we get Him. Because he will not fail to save all who come to him in faith. This is our great promise. So brothers and sisters, do not fear. Only believe. Believe these promises. They're for you. They're for you. They're not for someone else. If you're a Christian, these are for you. They're for you to hold on to in good times and bad. Because they are yours in Christ Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the almighty God who is able to keep his promises. Believe that Jesus is the faithful God who will keep his promises. Do not be afraid. Keep on believing. Your faith is not groundless, for it's grounded in the almighty God himself, and he is faithful to his word. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. The voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. His word stands. His promises stand. He will do it. Trust Him. He is able and He is faithful. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your infallible word that is medicine to our sin-sick souls, that is balm to us when we suffer many wounds from this life. God, we ask that you would grant us faith to believe your word, to believe that these promises are ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant us faith. God, that even whenever things are awful and we don't know how you're going to keep your promise, we don't know how you're going to provide for us, we don't know how you're going to give peace, we don't know many things, I pray, Lord, that in those moments you would help us to trust you. Your mercy is forever sure. Your word firmly stands. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe that we are your people and that you'll do good for us. Help us to not fear but only believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.